Will you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20, John chapter 20, and the fellows have Bibles for anyone who needs a copy of the scriptures, just get their attention as they make their way back so that you can follow along as we look at John chapter 20. Those Bibles are yours to keep. We want everybody to own a copy of the scriptures, bring it, make use of it, read it during the week. It is God's guide for us in every aspect of life. Today we look at John chapter 20. We have been for many months, I went back and counted, that uh, this is our 16th month in the uh, Gospel of John, but we did take a break, and, but it's been 16 months total. And there are 21 chapters, and we are at the end of chapter 20. So there are two more messages after today, and then we will have completed our study in the Gospel of John, the title of which is Meet Your Maker, that you see on the screen. June 14th, then, after these three last messages, June 14th is Ordinance Sunday. We will devote the entirety of the worship hour to the observance of the Lord's table. The following week, the 21st, our first at Woodhaven High School, will be a Father's Day message. And then on June 28th, we'll start a new series on the topic of heaven. I promised that to you back in December when we were in John chapter 14 in my father's house or many rooms. Though some of you may remember we had no power in here. The electricity was gone that day, so half of you probably weren't here. But I said at that time, our next series will be a mini-series on the topic of heaven. And then after that, I believe we are going to go through a thematic series in the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, and see all of the imagery that the writer of Hebrews uses from the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, so that hopefully that will gain great significance for all of us. So that's where we've been and where we're going we have three final messages, including today, in the Gospel of John. Some of you are or may be familiar with something called the Innocence Project. It's an effort to have DNA testing performed in cases where there may have been wrongful convictions. So far, there have been 238 post-conviction DNA exonerations. 17 of those 238 had been sentenced to death before the DNA proved their innocence and led to their release. The average sentence served by DNA exonerees had been 12 years. And so you have people who have been in jail for 12 years, some of them on death row, DNA evidence comes forward, says they weren't the culprit, and they're released. Well, whether or not you're aware of the innocent pro Innocence Project, we all know how conviction works. A verdict is rendered saying whether a person is guilty or not guilty. If guilty, it's going to require new evidence to overturn the verdict. And perhaps you've never been personally involved with a case that has to do with guilt or innocence. Or at least we think we've not because... We've never been on a court jury in a criminal case. But please make no mistake about this. We are all engaged in weighing evidence and returning a verdict about the most important conviction in all history involving Jesus of Nazareth. As we've seen in our study of John, his betrayal, his trial, his execution, they were all about the issue of who he is. Is he just a religious rabble-rouser who posed a threat to local Roman 
rule or Jewish religious power? Or is he, as the Roman soldier acknowledged at Jesus' crucifixion, surely this man was the Son of God? And you must render a verdict. More accurately, everyone must overturn the verdict they've already rendered. You see, the Bible teaches that every person who comes into the world has a natural bent away from God. We are born into the world as sinners, and as a result, we think wrongly about everything. We think wrongly about ourselves, we think wrongly about our world, about other people, we think wrongly about God, especially about God. We come into the world apart from God, estranged from Him. Our natural inclination then, when presented with truth about God, claims by Jesus to be God, is to meet those claims with unbelief. It's not something new. It's not something we didn't have before hearing about Jesus. Before you ever heard about Jesus, you had, I had, unbelief in my sinful heart. Have you ever considered that? So it's not something new, but hearing about Jesus simply exposed what we already believed in our hearts. I don't need God. I don't need a Savior. I don't need the Bible to tell me what to do. I'm my own person, and I'm a good person, by the way. I know what I want, I know where I'm going, and I know how to get there. You see, this attitude with which we're born is one that we cultivate throughout our lives unless unless something occurs to change our verdict unless we're presented with some evidence at a time when our eyes are open to it and we are now willing to receive it then and only then is the verdict that we have already rendered overturned in our hearts Unless there comes a time when we look at the evidence again and overturn the previous conviction of Jesus as a fraud. And you know those are the only options. Either Jesus is your God or Jesus is a fraud. Now C.S. Lewis had a third category that said he may have just been a lunatic and didn't know what he was talking about. Lewis didn't believe that. He was a Christian. And so he had the famous statement, Jesus is either a lunatic or a liar, or he is indeed the Lord. Those are your options. And every person here, every last person here, has rendered their verdict regarding Jesus. I have a book on my shelf, It's the title of which some of you may be familiar. Josh McDowell wrote a book years ago called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Helpful book, lots of evidence about the historicity of Christianity. He had another book, More Evidence That Demands a Verdict, with more evidence about the veracity of Scripture and the Bible and so on. Very, very helpful book. But the title can be a bit misleading, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, because you see the Bible teaches the verdict has already been rendered by all people. And therefore, you don't need to do anything to find yourself in hell. Did you know that? Just go on as you always have. Just go on saying, I'm waiting for more information. 
just go on treating God as if you can take him or leave him. If you do that, you will continue in the state in which you were born, cultivating your unbelief. And if you die in that state, you will stand before your creator, your maker, your redeemer, your would-be redeemer. And you will find yourself in the eternal penitentiary of the damned that the Bible calls hell. So every person then has to do something to overturn the verdict we have already rendered. How many times do you hear people say, yeah, you know, I believe in God. Me and God are tight. Unless you've come to Jesus Christ, you and God are not tight. We're separated from God. We've rendered our verdict about Jesus. And we must, we must, we must come to him. And that's why I've titled this message. You see it on the screen, but you also see it on the outline you should have received. Inserted in your program, evidence that should change the verdict. You see, I called this series through the Gospel of John, Meet Your Maker, because John's burden throughout these 21 chapters is to show us who Jesus is. To give us evidence, give us more than sufficient evidence, give us ample evidence that should cause us to turn in repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. This evidence should overturn the verdict that we've already rendered. And it's my prayer, and it's the burden of the Apostle John, that that would happen, if it has not, for every last one of us here. In John chapter 20, here's the setting. Let me just remind you. We saw a few weeks ago in verses 19 to 23 that 10 of Jesus' first followers, 10 of his apostles, were gathered in a room. They were huddled together, fearful for their lives because they had seen what had happened to their, their master. He had been crucified. They were fearful that those who executed him would now come for them. So they're huddled together, fearful in this room. The door is locked and Jesus just appears before them, you may recall. We saw that a few weeks ago. And Jesus appears before them and they, they see him alive and they are Glad, the Bible tells us. Jesus calms their fears with his first words after he enters that room. He says, peace be with you. Well, those ten saw that. Judas Iscariot is already gone. He's already hanged himself. He's already committed his dastardly deed of betrayal. And there's one of the other twelve, first twelve, who's not there. His name is Thomas. In verses 24 to 29 of John chapter 20, we find the Lord Jesus Christ about a week after that incident appearing again, this time not to the ten but to the eleven, now including, now including Thomas. Do you remember what Thomas had said? Unless I, unless I touch him, I will not believe it. I can't believe it. Now, it was not because Thomas was a skeptic, as many people have mistakenly said about him, if you read through the Gospels about Thomas, you find him to be a loyal follower of Jesus. He's just so distraught. He can't believe that Jesus has actually been killed. I saw him killed. Now our hopes are dashed for the kingdom to be established. And unless I touch him, I will not believe that he's alive, says Thomas. In John chapter 11, you find Thomas. In John chapter 11, as Jesus says, I have to go to Jerusalem 
to complete the work for which I came, to die for the sins of my people. Thomas says to the other apostles, let us go with him and there die with him. You find him again in John chapter 14. And Thomas says to Jesus, Jesus, we don't know the way to where you're going. It was right after Jesus had said, I'm going to my father's house. And if I go away, I'll come again. You know the way to the place I'm going, Jesus said. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know. What is the way? Jesus said to him famously, remember, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. No one comes to the father except through me. Thomas was with the others in the upper room as Jesus unfolded his great plan for his work on earth. Thomas was a follower of Jesus, but he was so distraught that he needed to see Jesus. And Jesus accommodated him. And we find in verse 29, as Jesus appears again for the sake of Thomas now, Thomas is able to touch him and handle him And he says famously in verse 29, My Lord and my God. This is the Lord and this is the God that all people by nature reject, but all people must, must come to render a verdict that says, You are my Lord and you are my God. Now here we are 2,000 years later. And you may be thinking, how does this, how does this help me? Well, we're going to look at this text in some detail. Looking at four things that John does for us in verses 30 and 31. They're listed for you in your outline. But for now, as you look at what Jesus did for Thomas, one of the things you should take away from that is, is this, that, that doubting, not understanding from time to time is okay. You know, there are things I just don't understand. But here's another thing that you should take away from this. God always, always provides for us what we need when we need it. He did that for Thomas. He has done that for me throughout my life. There have been questions about Scripture, questions about theological issues, and I've pondered and I've prayed about and I've thought about and I've sought counsel, and God graciously brings me somebody who has a perspective on that that helps me see what it's about. You've experienced that too, haven't you? And if right now you're somebody who's a follower of Jesus, you you believe, but there are things you just don't understand, don't let that get you down. That's true for all of us. And it's been my experience, and more important, in the Word of God, we find that God gives us what we need when we need it. And here's what we need to understand from the pages of the Gospel of John. I have it for you in the take-home truth in your outline. The Bible provides ample evidence for you to become a follower of Jesus Christ. The last two verses of chapter 20 are the purpose statement of the entire Gospel of John. Let's read them together. Verse 30. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So why should you overturn the verdict that you have already rendered about Jesus? Why should you believe in the risen Christ whom you've never seen? In these two verses, there are at least four reasons why you should do that. 
The first one is listed in your outline. Signs have been given to confirm the truth of Jesus' message. Verse 30 says Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples. And signs were given to confirm the truth of Jesus' incredible message. Jesus had made, you'll remember, the astounding claim that he was the Son of God. That he came to reveal God to man. He came to bear testimony to the Father perfectly and completely. Now there's nothing particularly unique in that claim. You could go out to California and within 10 minutes just going down the street you'll find 15 people who claim to be the Messiah. How was it then that the message of Jesus and his claims are going to be authenticated versus the claims of anybody else who comes along and says, I'm the Messiah? Well, those signs were designed to point to spiritual truth. John says this, Jesus did many other miraculous signs. And the words miraculous signs translate one simple Greek word, samion, and it's it can be translated just with one word, sign. Now, what is a, a sign? A sign's an event that's designed to point away from itself to another reality. If you are going on a trip to Chicago and you see a sign that says Chicago 186, that's a sign that's pointing you to the real thing. The sign is not the thing. It is pointing you to the reality. And the miracles that Jesus performed that were recorded in John's gospel were signposts pointing away from the physical miracle to the spiritual truth that Jesus was communicating. And even in our English word significance, you see that. It starts with, with sign. And that's the point John's making. These signs hold great significance, significance if we will but look at the spiritual truth that Jesus is communicating by them. And as we've looked at now the Gospel of John together, John has selected several of these miraculous signs pointing to a spiritual truth about Jesus throughout the Gospel of John. But with each of them, there's also a teaching, a discourse. There's the sign, and then there's a speech from Jesus explaining what it's about. And so we find the sign, the miracle of Jesus touching a man born blind, giving him sight, and that's where Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. That was the point of the miracle, to point to the light of the world. And on another occasion, we have that famous account of the feeding of the multitude. And after that happens, that's when Jesus in John chapter 6 says, I am the bread of life. Why did I give bread to all these people to point to something larger? I'm the bread of life. And probably the most notable of all of the signs that Jesus performed that John recorded for us is the one in which he raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. And you remember in John chapter 14, after doing that, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and I am the life. And so Jesus' signs pointed to these spiritual truths. And friend, on that day when God rolled the stone away, he authenticated all that Jesus claimed and taught. That was the greatest of the signs. Jesus rising from the dead. It separates Jesus from every other would-be Messiah. Every other teacher out there. Every other prophet out there. And so Muhammad's bones have disintegrated in the grave. 
Confucius and Buddha are dust. But you will search in vain throughout Palestine for the body, the bones of Jesus. Because he is alive. And the fact that he raised himself from the dead points to the spiritual truth that he is indeed your Lord and your God. And you must render that verdict about him. And those signs were not isolated signs. Notice what verse 30 says. Jesus did many other miraculous signs. John selected a few in order to point to the true identity of Jesus. But there were many, many more that John did not provide. In fact, in the very last verse of the entire book, chapter 21 and verse 25, John says, If all of the works that Jesus did were recorded, I suppose all of the books in the world could not contain them. History has been filled with occasional events that are hard to explain. People see those and they say it's a sign. And people are quick to attach significance to events in which there's really no significance. But Jesus didn't just have a sign here, one or two or three or one or two questionable events, John's recorded several of great significance, plus the resurrection, and Jesus did many other miraculous signs. This was not done in isolation. It was also not coincidental. Notice again what verse 30 says. Jesus did many other miraculous signs. That word translated did. In Greek, the original language, it means to make, to create, to engineer, to cause, to produce. It's a word that indicates intentional causation. These were not done coincidentally. Jesus did them on purpose in order to point to who he is in reality. You say, you know, but people do neat stuff all the time. I was, you know, watching on TV, my favorite TV preacher. And you know what I'm going to say. If you have a favorite TV preacher, you probably shouldn't. There are a few good ones, but why dig around in a garbage dump for a diamond when you can just go to a jewelry store? You say, I've known some people who have done some of these things. How does what Jesus did differ? Well, he did them not in isolation. He did many of them one. And a study was done regarding the claims of one so-called faith healer. And he provided documented evidence of one healing. And then the evidence was examined. Then they found that the person who was supposedly healed of cancer was not healed as a result of attending one of his meetings, but as a result of what a surgeon did. Now compare that to our Lord Jesus standing before a tomb containing the body of his friend Lazarus, who was so dead, had been dead for so long, the Bible says that his body had begun to deteriorate. It stank, the Bible says. And Jesus called him forth to life, and John says, I'm a witness of that. I saw that happen. These signs pointed to spiritual truth. They were not isolated. They were not coincidental. And so they confirmed the truth of Jesus' message. Here's a second thing. That these signs, these acts of Jesus did, they were given by, given to us by credible witnesses, believable witnesses. It matters not that Jesus did something 2,000 years ago if we can't learn about it. And so verse 30 says this, Jesus did many other miraculous signs, notice, in the presence of his disciples. 
there were many witnesses to the signs that Jesus performed. John mentions here Jesus' followers, his disciples. That certainly includes those that we call that special group called the apostles. But every believer, you and I, are disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. It was not just the twelve that saw Jesus perform these signs. Think of the feeding of the 5,000. The Bible tells us that Jesus fed 5,000, but it singles out 5,000 men. Now, if these men had their families with them, which undoubtedly they did, it's been estimated that Jesus fed as many as 20,000 people on that one occasion. Many people saw these. There were many witnesses to these signs. But more significant for us are the witnesses to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at what on the screen at front. Look at what Paul had to say about the many witnesses to the resurrection. Christ was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And now listen to the list of witnesses. And he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me, Paul, also. And represented in this group of hundreds of people that Paul named are men and women from all walks of life, rich and poor, commoners and upper class, simple men, well-educated, and even hardened skeptics like perhaps some of you are. And notice Paul's challenge. He says, some of them are still alive. Don't just take my word for it. You can go and ask them what they saw. There were many witnesses to these signs provided to show who Jesus really is. And these witnesses had intimate knowledge of what they saw. It speaks of Jesus' disciples. Now just, just think of the twelve who followed him. Just the twelve. These men spent three years in a close relationship with the Lord Jesus. They journeyed together. They ate together. They worshipped together. As these 12 men learned at the feet of Jesus, they saw him every moment of every day. These were not men who could be duped time and time again. Now, Some suggest that the apostles made up the story of the resurrection in order to save face for what Jesus had been teaching. That they had followed him for so long, now that he was dead, they had to do something. Well, that's wrong. And it's really stupid, as a matter of fact, not to put too fine a point on it. I mean, consider this. James was beheaded for Jesus Christ. Peter was crucified upside down for Christ. Tradition tells us he did not deem himself worthy to be crucified in the same position as the Lord. Paul had his head cut off at the sword of Rome. Every one of the twelve was martyred brutally for Christ, except for John. Tradition tells us that John was dipped in boiling oil before he was exiled to an island called Patmos. Now, does it seem reasonable that these eyewitnesses would expend their lives, forsaking all, and then submit to the most brutal treatment and martyrdom in order to propagate what they knew to be a lie? Friends, signs were given to confirm the truth of Jesus' message. And they were given by believable, credible witnesses. Here's a third thing in verse 31. 
These signs were recorded for you and for me in Scripture. Verse 31, but these, these signs, are written that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. These signs were selected to give us sufficient knowledge about who Jesus is. These signs are recorded. Though many other signs were seen by John, he chose these that are contained in this book, plus the resurrection, and he selected them because they communicate what we need to know about Jesus. In fact, there's a sense in which the Gospel of John communicates all we need to know about Jesus. The signs were selected to give us sufficient knowledge of who he is. And these signs were recorded to provide a continuing significance to us. When it says these are written, the way John wrote it, he uses a word that you could translate literally, these stand written. These stand written is used throughout the scriptures to describe the word of God's authority and its continuing authority in our lives. These that I have written, they stand written, they are authoritative, and they must be believed. Jesus said the word of God will never pass away. And the Bible is indeed the most widely circulated Diversely translated, most frequently read book throughout history. It's impacted more lives than any other piece of literature. It's unparalleled in its significance. And some of you may be sitting here saying, you know, I would believe. If only God would appear to me. If only God would show up some night at the foot of my bed and say, hey, wake up. Here's the deal. Then I'd believe. Friends, God has appeared in history in the person of Jesus Christ. And because it was a historical event, a means was needed to make that fact known throughout all history. And so John says, it stands written. These are written that you may believe. You hold in your hands, because we gave you a free copy if you didn't come in with one, you hold in your hands the sufficient authoritative record of that appearance of God in history. Now hear this. If you will not believe as a result of the account that we find in his word, you would not believe if Christ himself appeared to you. That's why the Bible says this. This is how people have faith. Faith means believe. Belief comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. You see, friends, the problem is not with the message. The problem is where it always has been. It is with the hearer. And whether or not the hearer is willing to change his or her verdict about Jesus in the face of the evidence. Here's a final thing that John tells us about these signs in verse 31. They were given to confirm the truth of Jesus' message. They were given to credible witnesses. They're recorded in Scripture. So they come to our time, to you and to me, but they provide the basis for the Christian faith. John says in verse 31, These stand written that you may believe. And what is it that you're to believe? We must believe that the Christ is Jesus. You see, that's kind of weird the way he said that. The Christ is Jesus. Well, remember, when we say Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name. Christ is his title. It means the anointed one. 
the anointed one, the promised one, the Messiah. In the New Testament, Messiah is Christ. The Christ is identified. We know who he is. He is none other than Jesus of Nazareth. These signs were given that you might believe. What must you believe? You must believe that the Christ is indeed Jesus. Though our English versions follow the word order of the Greek, there's a little principle of grammar that should change the word order here. John didn't actually say these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, but these are written that you may believe that the Christ is Jesus. And John presupposes that his readers knew something about the Christ, and he's identifying him. He's pointing him out. He says, in effect, you, those to whom I'm writing, you're looking for the Christ. Here he is, right here. He's Jesus. He's writing to people who are familiar with the Jewish scriptures, the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. The Romans weren't looking for a Messiah, but the Jews were. And when he says the Christ is Jesus, and this is what you must believe, he's scooping all of that Old Testament that the Old Testament says about the anointed one, the one who would come, the Messiah. And he's placing all of that squarely on the shoulders of Jesus. John's readers didn't fully understand it. But they knew that in the first part of your Bible. The prophet Isaiah had said when Messiah comes, he's going to suffer and he'll die. You all remember Isaiah 53 and verse 6. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. The Lord has laid on him, this one who would come, the iniquity, the sin of us all. When Christ would come, God would lay our guilt upon this suffering Messiah and he would be doomed and damned for our sins, sins that he did not commit but that we committed. The Christ who is Jesus is our substitute. And the Messiah is none other than Jesus of Nazareth. What was, must we believe? We must believe that Jesus, the Christ is Jesus. We must also believe Christ is the Son of God. And this really gets to the heart of what it means to believe these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. In John's day, it was common to express devotion to a particular God by saying that you believed in His name. Pagans would go to the temples of their idols. They would devote themselves to the service of their idol. And they would summarize it by saying this, I believe in the name of this, and then they would name their God. And John in this book has challenged over and over again to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That means to devote ourselves to Him. Why should I devote myself to Him? Because He is the Son of God. And when, he says, when it says He is the Son of God, it's a statement of deity. It's a statement of Him being God. It means He has the properties of Godness. All that God is, he is. And that's why Thomas got it right in verse 29. My Lord and my God. And so Jesus has exclusive right to your obedience and devotion and affection and anything less is to continue in the unbelief with which we come into this world. John says, I've written these signs, including the account of the resurrection, that you might believe that the Christ, the one who died to take your sin on himself, is Jesus. And now he must be your Lord and your God. 
And in the last part of verse 31, he says, there's something in this for you. If I believe, if I really believe that the Christ is Jesus, that Jesus is God, then what will happen? The last part of verse 31. By believing, you may have life in his name. And we'll finish with this, but importantly with this. If you believe that, you'll have life in Jesus' name. You'll have eternal life. Because he lives, then you too shall live. We understand that he is the resurrection and he is the life. And therefore, for Christians, death is but a doorway. One of the mile markers along the way in the plan of our God. And if you think that eternal life is something that happens at death, you've lost the significance of that concept as it's presented in Scripture. Hear this. Eternal life is something that believers have the moment they come to faith in who Jesus is. You have eternal life at that moment. And it will not end at any point in the future. And physical death will not take the life that Jesus bestows upon those who come to him. If you believe, then you are granted eternal life. In John chapter 10, we saw when Jesus said in his sayings about being the good shepherd, he said, I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. And you'll have one final thing, if you'll believe the ample evidence of who Jesus is. You'll have eternal life, but you will also have peace. You'll have peace with God. You'll have the peace of God that transcends all understanding, come what may. Because now you have a personal, intimate relationship with the God who made you for fellowship with himself. You came into this world separated from God. Your verdict is rendered regarding Jesus' claims to be God. But if you accept the evidence that God has given you, ample evidence, you're given eternal life. You're given peace with God. And you're given peace internally as well. And that's why we can have people like Liz. And if you've had a chance to talk to Liz this week, Liz has shown the peace of God that transcends all understanding. Can't explain it, can you? But God has sustained our dear sister because she has a relationship with this true and living God. Having lost her husband, she knows where he is. She knows where she'll be. And it sustains her and sustains us come what may. That by believing, you might have life in his name. Now, we're going to pray in just a moment. But some of you, if you're honest, you say, I don't have that. I don't have real life. I don't have any assurance that if I died tonight and I stand before this Jesus, who has given me this evidence that he would say, come into heaven with me. Because I've continued to reject the ample evidence that he's given. But you can have that now. You can have eternal life now. And you can have that internal peace that he offers as well. Now what do I do? Are you willing to admit 
that Jesus Christ did not come to earth on some fool's errand. (laughs) Friend, God came to earth. If God comes to earth, you know something had to be afoot. Something had to be wrong for God to have to come. If you want something done right, you've got to do it yourself. And God had to come and do this. God had to pay the penalty for your sin. What's that mean? You're a sinner. You have to admit that. You're a sinner before the God who made you. And you recognize what Jesus did for you. God came in the flesh and died as your substitute on the cross. And you repent of your sins. No more excuses. No more I'm waiting for more information. You have heard right now, May 24, 2009, the truth of who Jesus is. Ample evidence of who Jesus is. You must render an overturning verdict that says, I receive him as my Lord and my God. You repent. You go a different way. You think differently about yourself and about others and about God. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life and you can do that now. And so we're going to bow and pray. And when we do, some of us are going to pray and we're going to thank God for Jesus Christ. God come in the flesh. God who at a point in time in our lives turned the light on so that the evidence maybe we had heard before, now we saw in a different light and we embraced it and we embraced Him. And others of you for the first time in your lives are saying, you're my Lord and you're my God. And if you will pray from your heart to God, something like what's on the screen, no magical words, your heart to God, He promises to save you. Let's bow before the Lord. Jesus Christ, you are our Lord, you are our God. And Lord, I gladly profess you as my Lord and God, but there was a time where you were not to me. I came into this world as everyone else does, rejecting God as a sinner by nature, And my nature manifests itself in what I did and what I said and how I thought. But you in your grace reach down to show me the evidence of who Jesus is. And my blind eyes were opened and I saw the beauty of the Savior. And I embraced him when I embraced the good news of the gospel. Thank you, Lord God, for changing me at age 19. So that though I was physically alive, I was now spiritually alive. I was born from above. And I was given eternal life. Life more abundant. Life that will never end. Life absolutely guaranteed. I was given peace that passes all understanding. I thank you, Lord God, that I have a relationship with you as my Father. Not because of me, but only because of you. I pray, Lord God, right now that there are people who are doing that same thing. They are crying out from their hearts to you. I know that my life is not as it should be, and I know that that's the case in part because of my own sin. I see the effects of it. I feel the effects of it. I am a sinner. I've been going my own way, not your way. And I realize for the first time who Jesus is. He's the promised one. God has come. To do for me what I could not do. 
He died to pay the penalty for my sin. And so I ask him to forgive me, to save me, to deliver me. And we'll stand upon the promise that he grants that to all who call upon the name of the Lord. And I pray, Lord God, that there are people who are doing that. And who then you are granting life and changing them, starting now from the inside out to your glory and to their good. We pray this in the name of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Amen. Let's stand together as we